Good morning. If we could uh, find our seats, we'll get started this morning. And if you would, as you are finding your seats, open up the, your scriptures to Luke chapter 24, verse 33. Luke chapter 24, verse 33. And the goal this morning is to finish Luke. Yeah. <laughs> Which um, I had a couple people come up to me after last sermon and say, we started Luke in September of 2016. So we are close to ending. But the only way we're ending Luke this morning is if I do two sermons in one. So we're going to get two sermons this morning and we'll be out sometime this afternoon. Yeah. I'm not joking. We're going to do two sermons, but my goal is to get you out on time. So, all right. I heard an amen back there. That's... So the last two week, we, weeks, we've been going through the, the end of Luke and three passages mainly that have a common theme. They're found in, in, in Luke chapter 24 in verses 4 through 10 verses 13 through 35, and then what we're going to cover today, verses 36 through 53. And all three of these passages have a, a similar pattern. Bewilderment or confusion by the disciples, rebuke by Jesus or an angel, instruction in Scripture, and an excitement or a call to witness. I believe Luke, at the end of his gospel here, is really getting us ready for the book of Acts, because there's a connection between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Remember, Luke wrote Luke, of course, and Acts, and he wrote them meaning to, to go together. A lot of theologians just call them Luke-Acts. Um, it's really Luke is part one, book part one, and Acts is part two. They're meant to go together, and because of this, this morning, we're actually going to spend some time in the book of Acts. Acts, because I believe the end of Luke, again, is connecting us to the book of Acts and, and pushing forward in the book of Acts. And again, the theme that we've been, been going over is bewilderment by the disciples, rebuke by Jesus or an angel, instruction in Scripture, and an excitement to witness. And really, the last two weeks, we focused on bewilderment, or confusion, and rebuke. So today we're going to focus on the second half of this theme, and that's instruction and witness. And that's going to be our two points this morning, instruction and scripture and a, and a call to witness. And honestly, like I said, they're two separate sermons, and I wanted to get done today. So instead of separating it out into two sermons, I'm just going to speak really fast. Um, honestly, next week, and I, I just want to let you guys know as a congregation, we're going to do a Christmas um, sermon theme and uh, it will be a clear gospel presentation. Uh, so if you have family members that aren't saved or, or uh, neighbors or someone you want to invite to church next week, just so you know, it's going to be a really clear gospel presentation. It's close to Christmas, so the excuse to invite someone that you know is not saved. So with that in mind, two sermons today, we'll get, we'll get through it. Right? Luke 24, verse 33. Let's jump right into it. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Again, this is the two disciples... We didn't get to finish last week. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus reveals himself to them finally. Right? He's been walking with them, but, but hid himself. And he finally reveals him, himself to them at, at dinner, and he vanishes. And right after he vanishes, verse 33 says, And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven. Eleven because Judas is gone. right? The twelve disciples that become apostles, minus Judas, they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how, how, he, or how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Again, this is last week on the road to Emmaus. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood, stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled. And frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. All right here's that common theme again. There's bewilderment and confusion as Jesus is standing in front of them. They think he's some kind of ghost. Right? And that leads to verse 38, which is the rebuke. Verse 38 says, "And he said to them, 
Why are you troubled? And why uh, do doubts arise in your hearts? It's, it's a mild rebuke. Why, why are you doubting? Didn't I tell you that I would be raised on the third day? It's the third day. Verse 39. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Jesus' resurrected body is physical, or he even eats. So this leads us to our first sermon this morning. And the first sermon is instruction. We're going to spend half our time here on instruction. All right, look at verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Right? These are the words that, that I taught to you, plainly spoke to you, it says in, in Matthew or Mark, that he plainly spoke. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city um, until you are clothed with power from on high. I'm going to ask the question, what changed in the disciples? What changed from, from the disciples that we see in the Gospels, men that were, were really clueless, right? I mean, men that were scared, fleshly proud men, to the disciples we see in Acts. These men that were, were brave, right? fearless, faithful, wise, powerful Men that the Acts seventeen six says says turn the world upside down. Men that were willing to sacrifice everything. All twelve were, were martyred besides John. He was thrown into prison and and historical records say was tortured. What, what what changed? You can say it out loud, I heard it. You know what everyone says when I ask that question? Every single person that I say ask what changed between the disciples in, in the Gospels to the disciples in Acts? They all say the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's partly because it's true. Right? You can laugh at that. Verse 48, look at verse 48. It says, You are my witnesses of these sayings. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, which is the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power. Right? The Holy Spirit is going to bring power and the Holy Spirit brought power. And I want to be clear, before we even get into this first sermon, I'm not downplaying the Holy Spirit's power and what it means that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And we see that power in Acts. I am not downplaying the role of the Holy Spirit within the Christian's life. But most people forget a very important part to this equation. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit that changed the disciples. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit that brought power and boldness. Look at verse 45 again. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus taught them Scripture. Look at verse 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written, right? That's teaching. The Old Testament says, in other words, that the Christ should suffer and, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Remember last week? Luke 24, verse 27. You can look at that. Verse 27, it says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he took the Old Testament and went through the whole entire thing. And we asked, how long do you think that took? Can you imagine him being there when he was teaching that? I mean, Jesus wanted his disciples to know Scripture. 
and not just Scripture, deep theology. I mean, finding Jesus in the Old Testament, pointing forward to what he did, his death and resurrection in the Old Testament, you're going to dig in deep. I remember um, when I was about halfway done with seminary, there was a Christian man in our community that asked me, why are you spending so much time in school? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit living within you? That's all you need for ministry. You know that, right? He says the, the apostles were uneducated. Right? They were uneducated, just fishermen. They didn't have any school. All they needed was the Holy Spirit. Therefore, all you need is the Holy Spirit. But here's my question. As we go through the end of, of Luke here and get into Acts, if all the disciples needed was the Holy Spirit, then why didn't Jesus ascend to heaven right away? I mean, think about that. Listen to what John sixteen seven says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. How is it to any of anyone's advantage that Jesus goes away? Well, he tells you. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come upon you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, John 16, 7 tells us that one of the reasons, one of the main reasons Jesus ascends into heaven after his death and resurrection, he ascends to heaven, is that he gets to heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to us. And if that's the only thing the disciples needed, right, was the Holy Spirit, then why didn't Jesus ascend right away after his resurrection? Why did he meet the two disciples on the road to Emmaus first? and spend valuable time teaching deep theology. And again, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture. You know, most Christians today would say, well, that's a waste of time. Studying deep theology, why would anyone need that? If the only thing the disciples need was the Holy Spirit, then why did he meet with the 11 disciples and spend valuable time teaching the Old Testament? Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written. Right? If all they needed was the Holy Spirit, then why did he spend 40 days with the disciples teaching them before sending the Spirit? Turn with me to Acts 1.1. Acts 1.1. First service was so short, I had to give, I didn't give anyone time to get to the passages. We could take our time a little bit here. Acts 1 1. In the first book, right, in the first book, right, that's Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and they're supposed to go together. The first book is, is Luke, the Gospel of Luke. The second book is Acts. You can call it Luke 2.0 or something, I don't know. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, Theophilus. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had uh, given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, right? This is the end of Luke. This is the passage that we're in right now. And look what it says, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. That's an intense study of Scripture. And if you know your theology, that's deep, deep, deep theology. The kingdom of God, that that deals with how the Old Testament points to the New Testament, how it's related, how Israel's related to the church. I mean, that's what separates a lot of... I mean, that's a controversial subject. That's deep. I mean, it doesn't get deep. I don't even know where I stand on a lot of the kingdom of God. Just because it's so deep, it's hard to get my head around it. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Right? That's the Holy Spirit. Right? It was only after this intense study of Scripture. Let me remind you, too, this is after three years walking with the disciples, teaching the disciples, preparing them for ministry. Just as a side note, I think it's interesting that seminary is three years. I don't think there's a purpose correlation there or spiritual correlation. I just think it's interesting. Three years of preparing men for full-time ministry. 
Here's my opinion, and this is just my opinion, and this is not true for every church, so. But if a church doesn't value their pastors that are going to get up and teach the Word of God, if it doesn't value their full-time pastors to be educated in the Word of God, right, through Bible college or seminary, I would question the value they hold on the Word of God, period. Some churches don't have the means to send their pastors, and I get that. We meet pastors from third world countries that would love to go to seminary and get educated, but they're doing what they can. But if the church has means, why wouldn't they? Look, the apostles started off uneducated. That's for sure. They're fishermen. But the time they started their ministry, they were educated. They were taught by the best teacher that ever walked the face of this earth. Deep, rich theology. I want to be clear. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit that changed the disciples. And again, I'm not doubting the power of the Holy Spirit within the church and within the Christian, but it wasn't just the Holy Spirit that changed the disciples. It was also a a deep, rich understanding of the Word of God. There's something powerful when you combine those two things. When you have a deep, rich understanding of Scripture, when Scripture saturates a Christian and the Holy Spirit that is living within him uses that. If you don't believe me, turn to Acts 1.16. Acts 1.16. This is Peter talking to the apostles. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not even here yet at this point. Right? It hasn't, Pentecost hasn't happened, Acts 2. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. You think it's hard to find Jesus in the Old Testament pointing to, to Jesus? He's, he's saying the Old Testament clearly predicted that Judas would betray Jesus. I mean, that's knowing your scripture really well. Who became a, a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now look what G- Peter does in verse 20. He doesn't just say that. He, he quotes scripture. For it is written. Who's that sound like? Jesus, right? For it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's Psalm 69, he quotes. And let another take his office. That's Psalms 109. In other words, he says, Judas was predicted, and and Scripture tells us that we're we're called to to replace Judas with another. He's like, the Old Testament's clear on this. Turn Turn to Acts 2.17. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost, one of the most powerful sermons that's ever been preached. And what's he do in Acts 2.17? Quotes the Old Testament. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. He's quoting Joel uh, 2 to explain the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's happening at Pentecost. Look at, look at Acts 2.25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. And he keeps going. Now Peter's quoting Psalms 15. Turn to Acts 2.34. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's Psalms 110. That's one of the deepest statements in all of the Old Testament right there. Peter's sermon at Pentecost, man, that is deeply theological. Biblically rich. And 3,000 were saved. One sermon. Turn with me to Acts 3.22. God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, now now Peter's quoting Moses. It's like every time he speaks, Scripture just starts coming out of Peter. The Lord God will rise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to him, listen to that prophet, shall be destroyed from the people. And look what he does in verse 24. And all the prophets who had, have spoken from Samuel and those who, are, who come after him also proclaimed these days. 
Peter is saying, in other words, all the prophets, all the prophecy in the Old Testament, right? It, it's pointing to now. It's predicting what's going on right now. In other words, he's interpreting prophecy. And if you're a biblical student, interpreting prophecy is the hardest thing to do in Scripture. Like, Peter's become a biblical scholar. <laughs> and he keeps going. Acts 3.25, Peter quotes Genesis 22. Acts 4.25, Peter quotes Psalms 2, 1 through 2. He actually prays it. Acts 8.32, Philip quotes, quotes Isaiah 53, the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts 13, Paul quotes 1 Samuel, Psalms, Isaiah, Amos. But, but my favorite is, turn, turn to Acts 6, verse 8. This is Stephen. I just, you, I've taught on Stephen. He's one of my favorite characters in the Scripture. I told you the first person I'm going to go look for in, in heaven is probably Stephen. This is what it says. And Stephen, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then those who, um, then those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the uh, Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right, the wisdom, a deep understanding and knowledge of Scripture. And the spirit, right, the Holy Spirit, speaking through him. Look at verse 11. Then they, these are the men that, that are interacting with, with Stephen, they couldn't withstand his wisdom, so what did they do? They found false accusations against Stephen, the, the verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. That's, that's a lie. Look at verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in, in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And you get to Acts 7, which is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, where, where Stephen walks his accusers through the whole Old Testament, this whole chapter, quoting Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Exodus 3, Deuteronomy 18, Exodus 32, Amos 5, Isaiah 66. He proves from Scripture that it's actually his accusers that are speaking blasphemy against Moses and God. I mean, it's amazing deep theology and understanding of, of Scripture, understanding the Old Testament. Look at verse 10 again. Look at Acts 6, verse 10 again. But they could not withstand the wisdom. Or they couldn't withstand his, his understanding of Scripture and the spirit from which he was speaking. You know what changed with the disciples? It wasn't just the Holy Spirit. Jesus made sure that they had a deep understanding of Scripture, that they knew, that they knew their theology, that they knew their doctrine. He spent 40 days teaching Scripture, 40 days digging in deep. Then he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit used that knowledge in a powerful way. Listen, this is my, my application this morning. If you're saved this morning, if you, if you have a personal relationship with, with Jesus, if you have a personal relationship with the Lord, the Scripture is clear that, that the Holy Spirit lives within you. But you can ignore the Holy Spirit. Right, scripture says you can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. You can insult the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 10.29. You can resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. You know, like, the number one way you can ignore the Holy Spirit is by ignoring His Word. Right? By not being in the Word of God. Let me just ask a question. Who is the author of Scripture? God, right? But in particular, who's the author within the Godhead? The Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit. This is the clear revelation from the Holy Spirit to us. It's clear. Listen, if you want to make much of the Holy Spirit, get into his word. Right? Make much of his word. That's his words to us. And there's power there. Right? There's power when you, when you, when you are saturated with the, with the scriptures and you have the Holy Spirit living within you 
using that to change your life and to speak to others. And Jesus made sure this was true with both with the disciples. Both these things are true with the disciples. It says in, in Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds to understand Scripture. And then a few verses later in verses 49, it says, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you. That's our application. Listen, be saturated. You want, you want the Holy Spirit to move powerfully? Be saturated in the Word of God. And do what it says. That's our part. Diligently studying Scripture than doing it. And the Holy Spirit will use that in a powerful way. That's my first sermon. All right, that's the application of the first sermon. Here's my second sermon, the call to witness. Call the witness. Turn back to Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Luke 24, verse 45, says this, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, right? This is the Old Testament says this, Thus it is written. The reason it's the Old Testament is because there's no New Testament at this point. Right? The, the apostles write the New Testament in Acts. So this is the Old Testament. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins, right, salvation, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Right? Again, thus it is says, the Old Testament teaches, in other words, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Right? We've seen this as we've been going through Jesus' death and resurrection, Psalms 22, Isaiah 40, or 53, Daniel 7, and so on. I don't think people struggle too much with that first part. It's actually the second part I think most people struggle with. Right? People question, really, is it written? The Old Testament, it, thus it is written, the Old Testament teaches that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Does, that, that, does the Old Testament really teach this? Missions is a New Testament thing, isn't it? Right? It's not an Old Testament thing. The Old Testament is all about Israel, not the nations. About one nation, Israel. If anything, God just destroys the other nations for Israel. There's anything most people think about the Old Testament. I wish I had time to go through the whole Old Testament, but I don't. That's okay. But I want to look at one phrase. Verse 47, it says, all nations. And it really could be translated all the nations because it's the Greek is pantate ethne, all pantate. Ta ethne, ethne is eth, we get the word ethnic from. It, it, it means people groups more than it does nations. So, for example, America is one nation, but we have hundreds, if not thousands, I don't know, don't quote me on that, a lot of people groups within America, right? This is the ethne specifically means people groups. Okay? And we see this phrase, right? Ponte te ethne, that's the Greek. We see the Hebrew equivalent. Actually, in Genesis, over and over and over again. Let me just give you some examples. Genesis 18, 18, it says this. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation and a mighty nation. That's Israel, right? Abraham's going to become Israel, a great nation. He's going to have kids, they're going to have kids, and it's going to be one great nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Genesis twenty two eighteen. And in your offspring, it's Israel, the offspring of Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give you to your offsprings all these lands. Again, Israel. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 28, 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. The call of Abraham, which is the start of Israel. Genesis 12, 1. Now, that the, now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. That's Israel. That's the promise to Abraham. And I will bless you and, your, and make your name great. So, 
In other words, this is the reason. So that you may be a blessing. That's the point. That's why Israel's there. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17:3. Then Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall, they, shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. It's not Israel, not one, one nation, a multitude of eight nations, a father of a multitude of nations. God is saying that there's going to be people saved from a multitude of nations, and they'll be your spiritual children. I'm thankful for that. I don't know how many pure-blood Jews are in this room right now. Not very many. Israel's purpose was to bless other nations. And it's not just in Genesis. From here, the Old Testament builds on this theme throughout, throughout the whole Old Testament. I'll just look at the Psalms, right? Some of the Psalms. Psalms 9, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples, right? That's people groups, plural, peoples, his deeds. Psalms 18, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. Psalms 14, 1, clap your hands, all peoples. Psalms 47, 9, the, the princes of the peoples, plural, Gather as the people of God, of Abraham. Psalm 57, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Psalm 66, bless our God, all peoples. Psalms 72, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Psalms 86, all the nations, there's that phrase, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Psalms 96, declare his glory among the nations. That's a command. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Psalms 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples, plural. Psalms 108, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Psalms 117, praise the Lord, all nations, Extol him, all peoples. Right? There's this emphasis on God's name being praised among the nations, not just Israel. God's heart is for the nations. And this only happens if forgiveness of sins are proclaimed to the nations. If the gospel goes out, in other words, to the nations. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. I mean, I don't have time to cover everything. Huge portions of Isaiah dedicated just to the nations. Huge portions of Jeremiah dedicated just to the nations. Of Ezekiel. Almost every minor prophet has portions dedicated to the nations. The book of Daniel, right? Major portions of the book of Daniel written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Why? It was a common language to the nations. Listen to what Daniel 7.13 says. I saw in the night vision, and behold, the clouds of heaven came like a son of man. We talked about this. This is Jesus, right? It's what he refers to himself 98% of the time. I am the son of man. He's referring to this, this one passage. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was, was pres- or presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Well, a kingdom, right? That, that's Israel. He was given a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. A kingdom that represents all the nations, peoples, and languages. It's not just Israel. There are whole books dedicated to pagan nations in, in the Old Testament. Nahum, Jonah, or about Assyria. Right? And Jonah really is a rebuke on Israel. We know that story for not being a blessing to the nations, for not, not reaching out to the other nations. Jonah just, just wanted Assyria to be destroyed. That's all he wanted. Right? He, he took the gospel message, the good news that, that, that God saves, and he ran the other direction. He said those people are way too dangerous. Right? They're too evil. You've seen what they've done to our brothers? 
They deserve judgment. That's all they deserve. That was Jonah's heart, right? Listen, it breaks my heart when I hear today conservative Christians say something similar like, we should just nuke the Middle East. Listen, the Middle East is our mission field. Muslims are our mission field. Nuke the Middle East. That's the heart of Jonah, not Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus calls himself Jonah? I have. I mean, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. It's Matthew twelve forty. It says this. For just as Jonah was three days and, and three nights in the belly of a fish, so will the Son of Man be th- three days and three nights in the, in the heart of the earth. And I think about that. I'm like, does that really point to Jesus? I mean, I mean it does because Jesus says it does, but what, what's the correlation here? Like, I, I don't... Well, listen to what he says in verse 41. Then, then the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right, how does Jonah point to Jesus? Well, this is what John Piper says. Jesus identifies himself as something greater than Jonah. He is greater not only because his resurrection is greater than surviving a fish's belly, but also because he stands in harmony with the mercy of God and extends it now to all nations, unlike Jonah. Jesus is greater than Jonah because because his heart is different than Jonah. Because he has a heart for the nations. Listen, the Old Testament is missional. God's always, from, from day one, has always had a heart for the nations. I guess it would be day whatever when they sinned. A heart for the ethne, right, the people groups of this world. I want to be clear, too. This might be controversial, but just stick with me, and then I want you to challenge me with Scripture. Prove me wrong. This is more than just evangelism. This is more than just evangelism. There's a difference between evangelism and reaching the nation's missions. I love the, the idea behind calling us all missionaries in Tehachapi. We're not. We're not. Missions is reaching the nations. It's crossing cultural boundaries to share the gospel with people that don't have the gospel. Look at verse 47 again in Luke. Turn back to Luke. You're not there. 47. And the repentance of the forgiveness of sins, that's salvation, right, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Right, that's the Great Commission, which, which is Matthew 28, 19 is where we are more familiar with the Great Commission that says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's Pantheta ethne right there. Okay, here's something that's interesting about the Great Commission. You don't need the of all nations. Go therefore and make disciples. Why add the qualification of all nations? Well, look what Luke says in verse 47. Beginning from Jerusalem. Beginning from Jerusalem. Now turn with me to Acts 1.8. This is a restatement of the Great Commission. I'm sure Jesus, within those 40 times, made it very clear to the disciples and the apostles what their mission is. And so he probably spoke it a couple different times, and here's one of the times. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness, right? That's the Great Commission, in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the outline of Acts, by the way. You can split up Acts into thirds. Right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Right? It starts in Jerusalem, in other words. It goes a little bit further to Judea and Samaria, and then it's supposed to go to the ends of the earth, right? to the nations, the Ponte Te Ethne, people groups. Jesus is making it clear. The first church was called to reach the nations. And we learn in Acts that, that the first church was disobedient. The first church was unfaithful in this because they stayed in Jerusalem. Listen, the first church did outreach. They evangelized, that's for sure. 
but they didn't do missions. Therefore, they were disobedient. I don't know how many times churches say they want to model the first church, and, and, and there's a lot to model from the first church. Don't get me wrong, but it was a disobedient church. Look at, look at Acts 1-8 again. You will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what the church was called to do. And look at Acts, Acts 2, verse 41. Turn to Acts 2, verse 41. said this, so those who received his word, right? This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Peter's preaching those who heard it and received it as truth. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's amazing. A church less than 200 to to over 3,000. One sermon. Could could you imagine? Just one sermon and and our church goes to 3,000. I mean, talk about outreach, right? And look how beautiful this church is. Verse, verse 42, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. We can learn a lot from this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Again, the apostles are writing and teaching Scripture at this point. So their teaching is authoritative. It's Scripture. They, they dedicated themselves to learn Scripture. And the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were, were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and dis- distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And it was beautiful, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, we, we can learn from that. It's a beautiful church. Reaching Jerusalem, doing outreach, evangelizing. It says the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Turn with me to Acts 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. I mean, talk about a church growth movement, right? If, the, if this was our church and this is all we were doing, you would say, man, leadership, you guys are doing great, right? We're growing like crazy. Acts 6, 7. Turn there. Acts 6, verse 7. And the word of the Lord continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I mean, think about this. This church, less than 200, a little, little small church. Boom, 3,000, one sermon. Then 5,000. Then it's just innumerable. It's like we can't count how many people are being saved at this point. Just disciples multiply greatly, it says, in Jerusalem. Remember what Luke Twenty four forty seven said, it says, And the repentance for sin, forgiveness of sins, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Right? It starts here in Jerusalem. But, but it's not supposed to stay here in Jerusalem. Jesus said in Acts 1, 8, You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You're doing good there. And in Judea and Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. The church was growing, but they weren't actively reaching the nations. They were evangelizing. They were a beautiful church, right? But they weren't doing missions. They weren't crossing cultural lines, sharing the gospel. They weren't actively reaching the nations. Therefore, they were a disobedient church, and God disciplined them. Turn with me to Acts 8.1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. You don't want to go? You're going. I'm sending you. This is how serious Jesus takes 
reaching the nations. For how awesome this first church was, they refused to cross cultural boundaries to share the gospel. They probably said things like, well, that's just, that's just too hard. Are you kidding me? Samaritans, they're crazy. It's too dangerous. Those Gentiles, I mean, that's going to cost way too much. Let's spend the money at our church, not, not spending money to go waste time sharing the gospel with people that aren't going to accept it. I mean, the Gentiles are way too lost. There's no hope for them. There's plenty of people to reach here in Jerusalem. Let me ask a question. Does that sound familiar? For how awesome the first church was, God disciplined them for not actively reaching the nations, for not doing missions. They're evangelizing. Don't get me wrong in that one. They're doing outreach. But God called them to reach the nations, to cross cultural lines, to go to people groups that don't have the gospel and share the good news with them. That's why Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's a command, right, to the church. It's a command to us. Because I have a conviction, I'm sure you can tell, about missions. And I got this conviction not because I like to go on mission trips, I like other cultures, I like eating weird food. It has nothing to do with that. This conviction came from seminary studying Scripture. It's our calling as a church. And the Bible is so clear on this. Like I said, challenge, I challenge you to challenge me on this. If I'm wrong on this, then let me know. We're called to evangelize our community. I'm not saying we're not called to do that. We're called to share the gospel with, with those that aren't saved within our families, within our neighborhoods. But we're also called to reach the nations. We're called to cross cultural lines and reach people groups, especially those that don't have the gospel. I want to brag about our church just a little bit. And just so you know, this is not self-seeking because I wasn't at leadership when this happened. This is before, I was like the low man on the totem pole during this time. Missions has always been a high priority of our church. I think it could be a higher priority, don't get me wrong. But it's always been a high priority of our church. We've always given a significant amount of our budget to missions. Last year, we gave over $100,000 to missions. Something interesting happened to our budget in, in 2007 through 2009 when the recession hit. Right? I mean, I talked to churches, and it was, I was meeting other pastors from other churches that were just struggling. Their church was struggling financially. Our church budget just stayed the same. And again, I was saying, like, I'm a low man on the totem pole, so first person getting cut. <laughs> so I'm watching the budget like, huh, do I need to start applying to, to some jobs around here? Just stayed the same. And that's a testimony to, to faithful giving, right, of our church. But, but here's what, I, what else I believe. Right, and this is just a personal belief. I don't know if it's true or not. I believe God blessed our church during that time because we were faithfully giving missions. I want to end with this. It's a conviction of mine right, as a pastor, and I get this conviction from Scripture. I believe, first of all, outreach is important, and we are called to share the gospel. But I believe, biblically, the Great Commission is more about reaching the nations. Our call as a church is to reach the nations. That's our marching order. It's found in Matthew 28, Luke 24, Acts 1. I want you to think about this for a second. When we get to Revelations, it's very clear that the majority of people aren't going to heaven, right? You see that in Scripture. The gates are wide. The gates are narrow to, to the path. The majority of people aren't in heaven, but there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and people group. What do you think is priority to God? He wants every single people group represented in, in heaven. It's more about crossing cultural lines and reaching people groups 
than just doing outreach. Again, we're called to outreach. I'm not saying we're not, so don't email me about that. I believe God will only bless us as a church if we're obedient to that calling. So what can you do, right? What can you do as individuals? We as a church, as a leadership, it's a challenge to us as, as elders and pastors of the church to make missions a priority. But what can you do as a, a, um, a member of the church? Well, I didn't put this in my notes, but I'm just thinking, again, this is before I'm in leadership, so I'm not pumping myself up here at all, but the faithful giving that I have been giving to this church for so long has gone to missions. I'm thankful for that. That portion of that has gone to missions. Right? My tithe money that I give isn't wasted. But first, here's, here's some, some things you can do as an individual member of Country Oaks. Grow a conviction about missions. Grow a conviction about missions. I think this is biblical. Again, here, here's all I'm asking. When you read through Scripture... Right? Pay attention to words that, that are like this. Nations, languages, tongues, tribes, people, families. It's everywhere. Everywhere in Scripture. Old and New Testament. Maybe your small group can do a study on missions. The great book, Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, explaining the priority of missions in Scripture. Take a, a perspectives class. We're talking about trying to get one up here into Hatchapi. It's an intense study. It's a class. Like you get college credit for it. It's so intense on missions and, and a biblical perspective of missions. That's my first challenge. Second, just learn the names and faces of our missionaries. Learn the names and faces of our missionaries. We, we've tried to make this easy because I get how historically churches have done missions is they've supported like 60 missionaries. And you're like, how am I supposed to learn 60 missionaries' names. I mean, it's possible, but that's hard, right? So we've, we've said, you know what, I don't think that does a really good job at supporting missionaries. What we want to do is focus on a few missionaries and just send them well and support them well. And so we, have, we, we had four missionaries that were our priority so that we, we can memorize four people's names and faces, right? One of them dropped off because, because the dualies were, were kicked out of the country that they were in. And we've talked about that, and so uh, John got a full-time job, and he's not supported by our church anymore. So we have three right now. Pray that we have a fourth. We have three. Heather and Austin, Jimmy and Emily, and Chris and Kelly Lopop. Get to know their names, get to know their faces. The third thing you can do get to know them and what they are doing when they come and visit. Right? These three, because we support them so well, visit us often when they're in the States. Make a priority of getting to know them and get to know what they are doing in these other countries and what countries that they're in. Learn what they're doing when they visit. Jimmy and Emily will be here in January and February. We have two months with them. Get to know them. Get to know what they're doing. When they have luncheons, go to it. Here third, or that's third, fourth, sorry. Sign up for their newsletters and read them. (laughs) Again, just three. If you have 50 50 missionaries, you're going to get a lot of newsletters, right? If you have three, you can read those, right? Sign up for their mission letters and read them. Figure out what they're doing. Here's my fourth challenge to our church. Let's try to visit them. Let's try to visit them. By either, by either going, right? Here's a challenge for you. Emily and Jimmy want uh, a group to come out of retired age people. Retired age people to do a prayer, prayer trip out in, in where they're at. The low pops keep asking me if we'd send a group to, to Poland to do an in- English camp, which would be about 12 students, right? Sending them to Poland, that's expensive, I would love to send someone to, to visit Austin and Heather just to let them know that our church loves them, see how they're doing. If you can't go, which I would totally understand, not all of us can go, right? A lot of us can. If you can't go, all these trips would cost money, so give. And you know what? We, we have such a giving church, and I want to thank you guys. Every time we do a trip, it's like we have more than enough money. <laughs> it just comes. Right? We have a giving church, so so 
Keep that up. Don't get, don't get upset when you get another letter from our church for another group going. That's a good thing. If you can't give, don't give then. That's fine. Six, and this is probably the most important thing, the, the thing you can do more than anything else. And, and every single missionary I have talked with said, this is the most important thing. Pray for our missionaries. Pray as a family when you're at home. Right, we're asking three missionaries, again, grab their cards. They're in the back um, in the, the foyer over there. Grab their cards. Go through them as a family before you eat dinner. Pray for our missionaries. They'll help you get to know them and where, where they're at. Pray for their safety. Two of them are in dangerous areas. Pray for their families. You talk with them. and I mean, pray for their spiritual walk because I talk with them and they're people. And they're struggling with the same struggles we have. A lot of them are, are in places where they don't have the support group that we have, though. Pray for fruit. There's missionaries that spend their whole entire life in the, with the people group and never see one convert. One convert. And if they're actively sharing the gospel, it wasn't wasted. It wasn't wasted at all. We had a, a guest. I can't say his name, and I can't say what country he came from because it's dangerous for him as this is going out into the, to the Internet. We had a guest from a very dangerous Muslim country, and a lot of guys heard him speak. The thing that amazed me about him is he's saying there's this movement in this country. It's like they, we don't see it here in America, but, but thousands are coming to Christ, and it's, it's like exciting for him as a pastor, and his life's like on the line all the time, but he doesn't care. Right? It sounds like acts. And, he, and, he's, and he's talking, and he, he names off like four couples when he starts this, this, this speech that he has with us. And all four couples were missionaries that came years before and saw no converts. And he says it was because of them that this movement's happening. Amazing. He knew their names. Pray for fruit. Pray for the people they're trying to reach. Romans ten fourteen says this. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I mean, it should be our privilege to be sending missionaries into the field. Let's be a good sending church. That's, that's all about missions. And, and we're changing that name, just so you know, if you're confused. We're trying to get rid of that name, missions, just so you know. We're calling them cross-cultural workers because that name is dangerous. Missionary is dangerous to say so-and-so is a missionary and get them in trouble. And, and, and I would say if, if you sign up for someone's email and they email you something, email them back and just say, hey, I read it. That's all you have to say. Hey, I read it. I'm thinking of you. Careful with the word pray. Careful of the word missions. Don't use that word. Right? They're cross-cultural workers. So we're going to try to use, change that in our culture as a church. Instead of using missions, cross-cultural workers, it's going to take a while, but that's our goal. Let's be good sending churches to, to these people that are sacrificing everything to go share the gospel with people groups, with the nations. So those are my two sermons this morning. Right? First one, instructions. Let's dig deep into Scripture Second one is witness. Let's do missions well. I want to read the end of Luke, the last three verses. And why don't you guys stand with me as we finish off the book of Luke? It's Luke chapter 24, verse 50. And they led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and returning to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continuously in the temple, blessing God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, it is a blessing, Lord to be a part of what you are doing in this world, Lord. 
God, I, I pray, like, I know we're, we're called to reach to Hatchapi, Lord, and, and do outreach and evangelize the people that are in our families, that are that our neighbors, that, that we go spend time with, Lord. That's our calling, Lord, and it's our privilege to share the good news with those people, Lord, and I hope we see it as, as a privilege. But it's also our privilege to be a part of the mission work that's going on around this world to the nations, Lord. I pray that our church adopts a, a, a missionary attitude, Lord, that takes a great commission seriously and, and says we need to reach the nations, Lord. Historically, we've been a church like that, Lord. I pray that we just grow and grow and grow with a desire to see the nations reach, Lord. And when we see the ugliness and the evil that is going on around the world, Lord, we don't, we don't act like Jonah and just want it to disappear, Lord but we have your heart that says, I have pity for those people. They need the gospel. And that we're encouraged to send people, Lord. If we can't go, that we send well, Lord. Not all of us are called to go, and and I get that, Lord, but we are called to send well. I pray that we're a sending church, Lord, a church that has a heart for people groups because that's your heart. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the book of Luke, Lord, and I thank you as we finish up, God, and we come to the Christmas season. Lord, I pray that we we think about our, our missionaries that aren't home for Christmas, Lord, but have sacrificed that for the gospel, Lord. And I pray that we, we are constantly in prayer for them, Lord, that they, they find joy in the area that they're at, their new home, Lord. I thank you for this time in your son's name. Amen.